0: Welcome to Nakubo in Brief, a podcast series from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO Susan Wheeler Johnston, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is to help our listeners better understand the challenges that face the business of higher education. Our hope is that you walk away with a stronger sense of the trends, policies, legislative and regulatory issues that may impact campuses today and in the future. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of educational tools at nakubo.org. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the podcast. This is Liz Clark. I'm Senior Director of Federal Affairs at Nakubo. And joining me here on the podcast today is Juan Martinez. He's vice President and Chief Financial Officer and Treasurer at the Knight Foundation. Welcome, Juan.
1: Thank you very much, Liz. I really appreciate it.
0: Uh, let's get the ball rolling by learning a little bit more about you and the Knight Foundation. Tell us more about the Foundation and what your role is there, exactly.
1: The foundation is a, you know, private foundation here in Miami where we have an endowment of, uh, depending on the day, uh, between, uh, 2.2 and 2.3 billion dollars. Uh, the foundation is primarily focused on issues of journalism, uh, local U.S. communities. And, and right now we have a, a real focus on sort of building the trust in communities. Um, uh, we believe that information plays an extremely important component of that um and and as does our local spaces, as does art in our community so uh every year we make um about a hundred and twenty hundred and thirty million dollars in grants and other charitable programmatic expenditures uh throughout the uh United States. Um, the foundation was set up by the John S. and you know the the brothers John S. and James Allnay, who used to own Knight Ritter newspapers. So that's sort of the genesis of uh, who we are in our DNA.
0: Terrific. I know uh, for our higher education listeners, at least, they are familiar often with your work, or your work has supported work that either is at institutions or supports some of the interest areas or areas of studies at college and universities. Your role at the Knight Foundation involves running the financial side of the operation, but it, it dovetails into this work that you've done in looking at the asset management industry. And and that's because of how much you have under investment at the Knight Foundation.
1: That, that's correct, Liz. So we, um, so uh, as the sort of the CFO here, I'm responsible for all of the financial operations of the organization. Um, I uh, lead our relationships with um, outside legal counsel. And also Knife Foundation has, uh, since 2005, had an outsourced CIO arrangement, right? So our if you think about it, sort of the day-to-day operations of our investment function, uh, we've outsourced that. Uh, to Cambridge Associates since 2005, um, we work really in partnership with Cambridge Associates. So it's not the management of our endowment only; it, it, it's truly an, uh, a chief investment office. Um, the I work in partnership with uh, with that team, uh, and uh, and the, sort of the intermediary between. The foundation on a day to day basis, the foundation, the investment committee, and, um, and our investment office.
0: So that work is very similar to the work that, uh, we, uh, we support here at Nakubo of the chief business officers at colleges and universities. Many of them are running the day-to-day operations at their campuses. Some of them have large investments with outsourced CIOs. Others have in-house management of their endowment and other investment holdings. So, somewhat comparable to what business offices are doing in higher education. And in fact, one of the areas that Nakubo uh, does research in is in endowment management. Each year, we issue a study of endowments. The latest was the 2018 Nakubo TIAA study of endowments that was released on January 31st. And in the study, we look at the endowment returns as well as some of the uh, investment areas and investment practices of colleges and universities. And because of that work, that's how your study came to my attention and why Nakubo thought it would be interesting to speak with you here today about the efforts you're making at the Knight Foundation specifically, as well as the research that you've done with diverse ownership. So can you tell me a little bit more? What is diverse ownership? What does that mean?
1: So for Knight Foundation, um, and I'll just sort of um, stick with our definition and, 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 and parse it a little bit between Knight and the what we use for the study. At Knight Foundation, we really use a very broad minority and women um, uh, business enterprise, a MWBE sort of definition. So that would include African-American, Asian-Americans, and minority ownership. And we look at 50 Percent plus ownership as um as the uh, sort of our diverse o- ownership uh, benchmark. Uh, the study, um, and this is a study that Knight Foundation engaged uh, Professor Josh Lerner from Harvard Business School and and the Bella Research Group to do. Really looked at the definitions and used the definitions specifically from the databases that were av- available. So there's a variety of different databases, eVest and Prequin, for example, and they each have a different definition, but it's approximately uh, that.
0: Why did this issue become of interest to the Knight Foundation?
1: Well, I, I mean, I think I can give you um, sort of two versions of that. One is um, the sort of general mission of the foundation and our values. Uh, we as, a, as an organization that is um, based in our communities uh, and and um, our communities are extremely diverse, and um, we believe that diversity adds health to a community and diversity adds the ability to address complex problems in communities so for us it is it is a, a sort of an organizational value that that diversity is a good thing to this particular case of the of this study or our, our our interest in this area um as i mentioned you know we 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 kind of as an organization value diversity back in 2010 our ceo alberto bargwin was at a conference and someone asked him well mr bargwin how much you know diversity do you have in your investment management area and um he thought for sure, it was a material number, and gave me, but he didn't know, and he gave me a call, and he said, juan how, you know what's the percentage of assets under management and i said that's a good question i don't know and I uh called our c i o and said, "Give me a number and what we were kind of shocked that it was uh we had one a, a one manager an african american manager uh owned manager that was managing about seven million dollars uh of a 2 1000000000 dollars portfolio. Um, Again, going back to the original uh, premise that I mentioned, right, the value that we think uh, that diversity adds to communities, we think it should add a similar value in any kind of complex endeavor and and just in general, right, but especially in complex endeavors. And so we went to to our investment manager, uh, Cambridge, and we began to work with them to add um minority or women-owned firms to add diversity to our portfolio um and the the sort of broad mandate was we're going to add these managers as we would any manager uh we will we will not accept any kind of um of uh concessionary investment return we don't want to accept uh, uh additional um sort of concessionary risk risk adjusted returns we just think that there should be sufficient managers within the field or in the in the av- available that we could do this and so uh over several years we've added a variety of different managers and different uh assets and different investments over time and and so i'm happy to say that um by the end of of last year, of 2018, we had about 35% of the portfolio managed by uh, 13 different firms, Um, uh, minority women-owned firms.
0: That is very impressive. And I would say that we see this commitment to diversity play out at colleges and universities on a number of levels. I, I do think that there is much shared agreement that diverse teams, diverse groups, diverse communities provide uh, creative thinking, new approaches to problem solving. And here in this space, you ran into a situation where you didn't realize the lack of diversity until you actually asked questions about it. So uh, thank you. I I think I, I know when I first heard about this work, both at the foundation itself and in the research that you are doing, I I did think that they were new questions about diversity in a field and in a space where they hadn't really been asked before. Uh, Let's turn for a minute to the study, uh, the 2018 Diverse Asset Management Firm Assessment. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? What were some of the key findings uh, and uh, what... Changes in time have you seen uh, in this more global look? The changes at the Knight Foundation itself are are very impressive. Uh, what are you seeing on a more uh, global level?
1: Yeah, well, so this is a, a, a sort of a next take on a, a study that we originally did in 2018, or I'm sorry, in 2016. We redid the study in 2018, and what we've found is, I would say, slight progress uh, though, you know, not, not, uh, not huge. Right. So for example, uh, in the, in the uh, original study, um, 2016, 1.1% of all, um, assets under management in the investment field were managed by minority and women owned firms. Um, in the new study about 1.3% of all assets under management. So, uh a slight increase uh and certainly an absolute dollar is a large number but but um we're talking about a seventy trillion dollar industry um there have been sort of a a small increase in the number of um of firms as a percentage uh so um for example we noted that um that the number of firms grew from about seven point three percent of all firms to about 8.6% of all firms. So that's a material number. Uh, but that increase, some of it may be due to changes in the way that some of the underlying databases have been uh, defining managers. Um, so it's, it's, it's a short period of time. And we know, for example, that Prequin has changed some of its um, of its indicators, its it's uh, collecting of diversity indicators. So that may have changed the number up a little bit. Um but it's still a relatively small um, amount of uh, of assets uh, being run by these um, diverse firms. Now, two of the areas that we looked at specifically, which continue to happen, were um, the performance of these firms, um, because one of the uh, kind of questions that always comes up, as I was mentioning when we established the mandate, we were looking at not having any kind of concessionary return for these managers. and um, there's always been sort of a of a uh, unspoken assumption that uh, that uh, diverse managers uh, e- are equal uh, uh, lower returns. But the reality is if we're looking at performance that uh these managers uh the diverse managers were equally if not overrepresented uh among top quartile performers right so for example um women owned um women owned private equity firms uh you know 29% of them were in the top quartile uh 34% of minority owned private equity firms were in the top quartile so uh you know that would point to uh or at least have some evidence that would point to Uh, uh, an availability of firms that are performing at a high level uh, within the space.
0: To me, that was the greatest takeaway that I took from what I've read about your studies, that you busted and a uh, frankly unsubstantiated myth that uh, minority-owned asset managers had lower performance, and I think that's a that's a huge takeaway. And folks should absolutely question their uh, assumptions and why they came to them. But I also believe it's further important uh, uh, for many endowment managers they are required to seek out the best performance possible under certain laws and rules that govern endowment management. And I have heard in the uh, social and environmental governance space when it comes to investments that uh, some asset managers have questions about whether they're upholding those laws if they start moving too many investments into those spaces. But this study absolutely, at least in this minority owned uh, and diverse asset management area uh uh tears that argument apart well
1: i mean I, I think i think that there are um there's sort of these societal expectations that we apply um that we apply right and that um in many other cases and hopefully in most other cases or in all other cases uh, we've taken them head on as a society and said, you know, that's not right. You you should evaluate people individually. You should determine what their background is. You should see what their capabilities and performance is. And that's how you should treat them. Uh, I think in, in, um, in the investment world, there are many proxies for that type of an argument that uh, prevent people from performing and then don't allow them opportunity to to, to perform, and even when they do perform, hold them to different standards. Um, and I think that that's, that's an issue. Uh, we, we have done some further studies um, kind of testing this idea of, of performance and, and looked specifically at private equity and have seen that um, if, if a firm underperforms in private equity, uh And given this is you know there's no we, we can't we're, we're trying to be uh, intellectually rigorous here right but um so we don 't say that there's a causality associated to it but there there seems to be a um you can drive a correlation here right that is that it it seems that if a non a non device firm a non diverse firm underperforms it's about ten percent uh less likely than than average to raise a new fund right. But if a diverse uh, manager underperforms, they're about twenty five percent less likely to start a new fund um so hmm. so I mean there's something there uh and mm-hmm. and yes, yeah, some of it may be societal, some of it may be be pressures some of it may be assumptions right that people have um and you know the one of the things that we did as we worked with our o c i o was to try to understand. The kind of structural barriers that we might have as an asset allocator um, to making investments with these firms uh, so some of these firms are uh, potentially smaller than you know Blackstone right so they 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 they're kind of smaller than big firms uh, and and so as we as an asset allocator are looking to make an investment, we can say well that firm uh the my typical bond uh allocation needs to be two hundred fifty million dollars if it 's not two hundred fifty million then the firm or the if the ask if the if the firm has less than five or six billion dollars under management then i i can't make that investment right i can't make that allocation. The question we ask ourselves is well what 's the magic behind the five billion dollar number right is it, because then that excludes a whole population of potential managers. Um, what's the magic there? Could we make a smaller allocation with a very, with a good firm with institutional quality controls and good track record? And then as they build up their assets under management, we can, we can increase our investment with the firm. Um, and so it changed, we changed our behavior a little, and that changed our ability to make those investments and and has has really uh, proven to be beneficial for us.
0: You kind of predicted the next question I was going to ask, which is, uh, as we look for positive change in the space, how much does that change need to be related to decisions about asset allocations by the investors versus uh, how much of that change comes from change in the uh, ownership or management of funds themselves the landscape of opportunity that investors have uh with uh women or minority owned funds I,
1: I you know I think that it's incredibly interrelated uh I think on the asset allocator side there's um, it's very important for asset allocators to look at their uh process their diligent not only their diligence process but their um And by diligence, I mean, like, what are the the kind of the benchmark uh, minimums that they consider to be necessary and and things of that nature or even ticket sizes as they make their allocations? Could they break up, break that up into multiple investments over time as opposed to uh, making one investment today? Right. We like to say we think about managers two years from now, not only today. Um, So that's important. Um, I do think that it's incredibly important for the industry to look at diversity within the investment operations, within their investment operations, right? So that non-diverse uh, funds, larger non-diverse funds, public companies begin to uh, think about the diversity within um, their investment operations, not just throughout their organization, So, that minority and women managers get more of an opportunity to be able to gain the experience necessary to um, start their own funds.
0: Well, uh, let's keep going down that track and let's talk specifically about colleges and universities. In our study looking at uh, 2018 endowments at colleges and universities, uh, the Nakubo TIA study found that across 802 colleges and universities, uh, 4% reported having a diversity and inclusion policy for hiring asset managers, uh, 72% reported no, and 24% uh, responded with no answer. Uh, a little over 7% reported using diverse managers regardless of institutional policies. And I, I would just point out that our study overall looked at uh, about 670%. Seventeen billion dollars under investment. What's your reaction to that? What do you make of this? And, and what should institutions consider in light of these results that this study found?
1: You know, I, I would just say that I think um, incumbency is an incredibly powerful force. Um, it is in our nature, I think, to do what is uh extremely comfortable for ourselves, so um if I have invested in a uh bond manager in one place and I move to another place i I think about investing in, when I think about allocating to a bond manager, that name is in the top of my uh mind. Um, when I am already tracking um a a uh, an asset manager and they have a new fund it's it is a natural i already have a relationship with the institution i already know who they are and so i'm open to hearing about their new fund right it sort of de-risks it it's you know it, uh, incumbency is a social lubricant right it it de-risks relationships um that's a that can be a problem right because it also creates uh, self referential filter bubbles um and and we all know and and we all as investment professionals know that if we were to look at uh for example active managers in, in equities across our portfolios, you know there are uh concent- unexpected concentrations in particular names that might be there because everybody thinks it's a good investment right and so you start getting, um, uh, a little bit of a herd like mentality. Um, and, and so I do think that we need to, uh, question our own, um, sort of comfort zones and begin to find, um, managers who can produce alpha in ways that differ or that, or that have different perspectives, right. That are, are differentiated, um, after all, I mean, I think for us as professional investors, right, we look at two things. One is um, not sort of preserving capital, not losing capital, institutional quality. And then the other side of it is, uh, are there differentiated investment managers who can get uh, different, you know, uh, alpha? And so some of that, if you are investing with the same people who've learned from the same people and who are doing it the same way, Ah, uh, you're going to get the same results, right? And so it it it's in our best interest as investment professionals to question that.
0: I think that it is always comfortable for people in any sector in any line of business to stick with what they know. But it's really opportunity is often in the unknown. and uh, you you've definitely hit on. Uh, a new perspective there as, as our members and as other asset managers go in search of Alpha. I would say that I'm happy today to have met a new acquaintance in you. And Juan, thank you for spending this time with us. Do you have any uh, final comments or uh, last words that you'd like to share? Yeah,
1: I, You know, first off, I appreciate the, your time and your shining a light on this, on this topic. I think it's an important topic. Um, I would, uh, urge your listeners to kind of look at our studies and, and there are other studies in the field that support this. It, there's nothing wrong with just asking, uh, non-diverse managers what their policy is on, uh, diversity within their investment ranks. Not to make it a screening question that says, if you don't have a certain percentage, you don't, we don't invest with you, but it, it's amazing the way that people respond to just being asked the question uh if if asset managers think their customers care they will change their behavior accordingly um, and will respond to that type of caring so i would just urge investment offices even if they're not allocating dollars today just ask the question and and i think i think we'll see some amazing results
0: Terrific. Juan, thank you so much for joining us today for this podcast. I hope to speak to you again sometime.
1: Likewise. Thank you very much.